The text for the sermon this day is taken from the gospel lesson, which you heard a little bit ago. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God, our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This text is a text that has been debated for many years over the millennia of the church. And the debate has revolved around a very simple question. When John asks, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Was he asking for for the sake of his disciples? Or was he asking for the sake of himself as well? Now, there's many that have gone both directions. And I think very often those who would argue that John couldn't be asking this for himself comes from an unrealistic expectation of the individuals within the scriptures. Sometimes we are tempted to think that they are without fault. And John the Baptist, Jesus said it in the text today, that no greater person has been born of women of a woman than John the Baptist. And yet, John himself said, when Jesus came to be baptized in the Jordan... I should, not be, I should not be baptizing you, but you should baptize me. The baptism with which John was baptizing was a baptism of repentance, which means John understood and knew that even he was a sinner. And therefore it is not hard to believe, it is not too difficult to believe that he may have struggled. With his faith. Because think about where he is at. He is in prison. Now he isn't in a nice prison. Not that there are many nice prisons. But even compared to the worst of prisons in modern day. This was a pretty harsh prison that he would have been in. He most certainly did not get any cable television mainly because cable television didn't exist yet. He did not get a comfy bed or even a a mattress of any sort. He was in a prison that would have been dark. It would have been dank. And he would have been sitting in there for hours and days and weeks and months. And the thing is, is that you know that time did not fly in in that little room. To make things even worse... Herod, who was the one that arrested him, would often make John a source of entertainment. He'd go in there and get John all riled up just to be entertained by his speaking. 
He didn't care what John said. He just wanted to be entertained. He was almost turned into a jester to John, to Herod. And John knew that eventually he would die in that very same prison. Now the thing is, is why was John arrested? If you watch the Bible miniseries, they, cl- they tried to claim that they were challenging John. John was, John's authority or leadership skills were being challenged. By the way, just a hint, the Bible miniseries, don't use it for your Bible knowledge. You'll pro- your Bible will get messed up. But he was not being thrown in jail because of his leadership ideas. He was not thrown into jail because he said that repent. He wasn't thrown in jail because he said the kingdom of heaven was near. He wasn't thrown in jail because he wore weird clothing. He wasn't thrown in jail because he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or because he said that Jesus was the Christ. He was in jail for one reason. Because he spoke against a sinful relationship. The sinful relationship between Herod and the, and the wife of Herod's brother. And by the way, Herod's brother was still alive. Because he spoke against it, John was arrested. And because he spoke against it, he was beheaded eventually. So it's not hard to understand reason why, while he's in that jail, why he began to wonder, did I hitch to the wrong horse? Are you the one who is to come, or should I be looking for another? I mean, he was the, voice, he was the one to prepare the way. Certainly, if he was going to go to jail, it'd be for something bigger. This past Tuesday, I preached on this text for our circuit winkle, which is when us pastors in the area gather together and we do Bible study. We meet and kind of talk about issues going on in our congregations. And it's a very appropriate text to read as a pastor. Because as pastors, we are charged with proclaiming the word of God. But the thing is, is not every, I wish I could tell you that every moment of every day, the ministry is always joyous. I mean, always happy. There are definitely moments that challenge us. There was, when I was at seminary, the line that was always said was, the greatest thing about being a pastor is the people. The worst thing about a pa- being a pastor is the people. Because every pastor knows that experience with that one person, the agitator. And by the way, don't worry, as I'm saying this, I don't have anybody, any of you in my mind. I'm speaking in generalities. But we all, but there is that agitator, that person who just likes to rile things up. That person who they're not happy unless they have conflict. They're not happy unless they have something to complain about or some way to exert power over others. There are many pastors who 
have experienced extreme turmoil in their congregation. Turmoil on them, on their marriage, on their children. And there have been pastors who have been beaten, beaten up so much that at the end of their ministry in a congregation, they were asking that question. Have I been preaching about the right one? Are you, Jesus, the one who is to come? Or should I be looking for another? And yes, there are pastors who the answer has been, I should be looking for another. I do know of pastors who have become atheists because of their experience with the congregation. That is experience in clergy. But the reality is, is that all of us, the world finds ways to beat us down. And it may be, this is something that kind of goes kind of cross between a pastor and, laity and others. John was in prison because he spoke against relationship and a sinful relationship. We as Christians, if we believe what scripture believe, teaches, we believe that marriage is to be between a biological man and a biological woman. To say otherwise is not acceptable within our society. And yes, there are places where pastors are thrown into jail for saying that. As close as Canada, that has happened. There are those when a pastor, or maybe yourself, speak about that issue. Or maybe you speak about that merit that a man and a woman should not live together prior to marriage. Even though every sociological data has shown that that is bad. Yeah, you don't even have to go to the Bible to point to it being a bad practice. You could go to actual social studies that have shown it to be bad. Or if we say that it is not good to sleep together prior to marriage, that is considered old-fashioned. Even though psychology and biology has proven it for over 200 years that it is a bad idea. Those who live together prior to marriage, their divorce rate goes up by 50%. Those who sleep together out before marriage, their divorce rate goes up to 70%. Higher than those who wait. And they've researched even CNN. Anybody think CNN is a super Christian conservative news network? No. And even they have reported that it is, not, it is damaging to the relationship, especially to women. It actually gives men a lot of power over a woman. But if a, man, if a pastor or any of you say this to your kids or your grandkids, you're an old fuddy-duddy and you need to get with the times. As if biology changes. Might even but it even goes beyond that. We live in a world that as you just turn on the news, you begin to see the tribulation, the trials of our world. Not just based upon what you say, based upon what we preach and teach. But you look at the fact of the reality, as I was just saying. 
Divorce is a reality. And I've mentioned this before, I mentioned this last week. We have split families. The reality is that there is consequences to the way the world thinks. We live in a world where morality is becoming more and more depraved with each passing day. We live in a world where sickness and illness and disease is pervasive. We live with the reality that every single one of us, one day, will die. Every single one of us is dying from the moment we are conceived. We face the tribulations and the trials of the world. It is very easy to look at the darkness of this world and begin to doubt and wonder. Look at James. He says to his, to his audience, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Do you realize when that was written? 44 AD, maybe 50 at the latest. He's telling them to be patient. In case you have not, don't know, you did not miss the Lord. He has not come back yet. So none of them ever got to see it. Other than him coming individually when they died. But the final return that he promises, descending on the clouds, we're still waiting. And the words to you are still the same. Be patient. There's a very real possibility that none of us will see the day that he descends on the clouds. And so as we live in the tribulation, the trials of our world, it is so easy to ask of Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus' answer to John was the blind here, or say the blind see, the deaf hear, the leper is healed, good news is preached to the poor. The only problem is, is that we don't get to see most of those things. For John, that was great evidence. Because he knew that the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, was a sign of the Christ prophesied in the Old Testament. But we don't get to see that today. Some people want to say, well, you know what? I've seen lives changed by Jesus. And you'll find so many churches that that is their selling point. We change lives. You've got to come to this church. Do you know that Muslims can change lives too? I'm serious. Have you ever read about Malcolm X? Before he was a, before he was a Muslim, he was in jail. He got on the straight and narrow when he became a Muslim. There are atheists that their lives were changed when they rejected the idea that there was a God. So just saying that you change lives doesn't prove anything. Saying that it makes you feel good. It makes me really feel good when I sing those songs or I hear those words. Again, any other world you could say the exact same thing. So this is actually where this thing, there's this subject that's known as apologetics. It's helpful. The defense of the Christian faith. 
What you can say is that we know that Jesus of Nazareth lived. He lived around 30 to... He, he, he lived from probably 5-ish B.C. to 30 or 33 A.D. We know from the 27 documents that make up the New Testament, we know from the writings of people like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and other people of the first century, that he was crucified during the reign of Pontius Pilate. We know that when he was crucified, he died because the Romans were really good at killing people. They would not make a mistake of taking down a live person because they knew that they would be executed if they failed themselves. He was indeed dead. He was indeed buried. And when they came to the tomb on the third day, there was no body. And the very first ones to report that, that, Jesus, that, the, that Jesus had risen from the dead was the women. Which in the first century, if you were to make up a lie and say something, didn't ha- say something happened that didn't, the last thing you would do is have women as your witness. Because in the first century, women were considered to have no credibility. So you'd make sh- if you were to lie, you would make sure your witness was a man. That's the way first century people thought. And yet, the women are the first witnesses. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, it can be argued that they were the only witnesses, according to Mark. There were others. The other Gospels record the, uh, the men, but Mark ends where the women witness. There are, and then consider the disciples. They all went to death. They were executed. They suffered excruciating pain rather than deny that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. Note, not that they believed, but they saw him risen from the dead. If anybody knew Jesus never rose from the dead, it was those 12 apostles. And yet we know they went through incredible pain. For example, Bartholomew was skinned alive prior to being crucified. I don't know about you, after, the, after they peeled the first strip of flesh, I'd be like, I will tell you everything I know, every secret I've ever made. I could tell you where my grandma left her, hides her money, everything you need to know. They, didn't get, they did never once said, Jesus did not rise from the dead. And the only way you can explain it is because they actually saw it. See, the evidence is there, and I just went through some of them. But there is so much, there is plenty of evidence that Jesus of Nazareth, was, who was crucified, died and buried under the reign of Pontius Pilate, historically, factually, rose from the dead. And that means that he is indeed the one who is to come. See, he is the one of whom John writes, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. We need not, you do not need to look for another. You only have to look to the cross and see, yes, 
He is the one. The one who was in the manger, who we will celebrate in a few, in a few days, is the one who went to the cross. He is the one who emerged, risen from the tomb. He is the one in the bread, in the wine given to you for the forgiveness of sins. He is the one who washes away every sin of doubt, every sin of unbelief, who wipes away every sin, even of those relationship things I began, I was talking about earlier. His blood washes and forgives that and every single sin you have committed. He has declared you whole, renewed, holy, sanctified. You need not look to another. John knew this at his death, that he can look. He is, that Christ is the one. And he is the one to whom he looked. And so also may we look to him until the day he returns in glory. Amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ keep you in the one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen.